Keep your car looking its absolute best year-round with 303 Cleaners and Protectants. 303's revolutionary graphene nanospray coating gives you professional protection in a simple, easy-to-use formula. It will keep your car's paint protected for up to 12 months and give an insane level of depth and gloss. You can also use their brand new 303 Graphene Detailer to boost protection, slickness, and shine throughout the year. It can even be used for quick cleanups of light dust and fingerprints in between washes. For a one-two punch to keep your car licking its best, look no further than 303's line of graphene products. 303 Graphene Nano Spray Coating to protect and 303 Graphene Detailer to boost protection, slickness, and shine. Both products are available now at Advanced Auto Parts, AutoZone, and select Walmart locations. Visit 303radio.com for more information. The difference between an agent and a Realtor is real. Realtors have the expertise to find exactly what you need and the ethics to do the right thing, even when it's the harder thing. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. That's who we are. And now, please welcome... It's time for the Bradford Files, right now on WEEI.com. Welcome to another edition of the Bradford Files. Today's guest is CJ Nikowski. He's a former Major League pitcher who also pitched a couple years in Japan, a few years in Korea. But he has a unique perspective on a couple hot-button topics in the world of Major League Baseball right now. Number one, Yu Darvish, who he pitched against in Japan. And he talks eloquently about... The differences that Darvish will have to face if he does come over to the United States and does pick for, pitch for the Texas Rangers. And also the differences between Darvish and Daisuke Matsuzaka. CJ also talks about his time with Bobby Valentine. He played for him with the New York Mets just for a month in 2001 after being traded. And against him in Japan. And Nikowski talks about how Valentine was perceived not only in the Mets clubhouse, but in the world of baseball when both were immersed in it in Japan. So with no further ado, I give you C.J. Nikowski. Today we have C.J. Nikowski, who has a lot of interesting stories and a lot of interesting angles as far as we're concerned in the world of baseball right now, and a lot of, in terms of Red Sox fans are concerned as well. Uh, C.J. played in Japan. Uh, he's very familiar with Bobby Valentine, but he's also very, very familiar with one of the most polarizing guys right now in the world of baseball, which is you, Darvish. Um, first of all, CJ, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Rob. Good to be here with you. So uh, I'll just come right out of the gate. Is you, Darvish, in your opinion, going to be successful in the major leagues? I mean, I think he has all the tools to be successful. I don't see any reason why he won't. I mean, there's always you know, the adjustment period that Japanese pitchers have to go through, and there's some hurdles there that they have to overcome, to get comfortable here and to be able to kind of, to be able to replicate the success that they had in Japan, and I don't think they'll ever put up the numbers that they put up there, especially now. Uh, it's extremely difficult. There's been some changes to the baseball there, mm-hmm. and this past year, and the offensive numbers were just down across the board, and some of the numbers that pitchers were putting up were, were just absurd. Um, but this guy is legit. He's one of the few, and there is you could count on one hand how many I've always said how many impact players. Um, will be able to come over here, excuse me, will come over from Japan and be impact players here in the States. Uh, he's one of them, in my opinion. Um, you know, he's got great stuff, a plus fastball, a plus slider. Uh, those two things are going to translate even in the American League. And you can't say that a lot about a, about a lot of Japanese players, uh, especially pitchers. A lot of times their stuff 
if anything, is probably going to be more successful in the National League, and you're asking a lot for those guys to come over and do it in the American League. Uh, I think he can, and it's just a matter of if he makes those little adjustments with, you know, travel, time zone, different mounds, the you know the five the five man rotation, a little bit longer season uh, for Darvish who's going to be going to Texas, pitching in that heat. I mean, mm-hmm. he's used to pitching in a dome in a city that is actually a lot more similar to Toronto. Mm. Um, then obviously Texas would be a, a cool weather climate up there in northern Japan. So, but I think he can do it. There's a lot of things there that he has to overcome, but I, I think that he is one of the guys. Uh, he may be one of the last ones that really warrants the, the high posting bid. Uh, you know, that bid that got put in. Just for clarification, CJ played in Japan in 2007, 2008, correct? Correct. Yeah, okay. I played there for two years, and I was in the same division. There's 12 teams over there. Mm-hmm. Pacific League, Central League, and, and I was in the Pacific League where the fighters are, which is where Darvish was. And, you know, when you have only um, 24 interleague games a year, you have 124 games within your division, and there's only five other teams that you're playing. Um, you play each other quite a bit. And, and so I saw them, I saw Darvish quite a bit for those two years. When you when you saw him, especially the immediate reaction, what jumped out about him? Um, and was it obviously six foot five guy, not in the mode of uh, Daisuke Matsuzaka, probably not in the mode of a lot of sort of pitchers over there. But what really jumped out at you? Sure. I mean, that's definitely one of the first things that jumps out is him being that tall in, in that country. Is It's probably like him being 6'10 here, <laughs> uh, you know, to kind of give an idea of physically where he stands out. Now, those two years when I was there, he was a little bit skinnier than he is now. And he's up to 225, I've read. Um, always a hard worker, and most of the guys that I play with over there are. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just put an unbelievable amount of work in it and make the commitment to their careers. Uh, but the thing that I always, whenever I watched him at that point, and he was a lot more wiry then, he was just a little bit skinnier, but his arm was so live. Mm. And it was live even here in the States. So you, you know, like I said, when you go over there, it just it sticks out that much more when you're surrounded by uh, the Japanese players and the American players that go over there. I mean, we have to be honest with each other. When you, know, when you go over to the States, you go over to Japan, the kind of players that go over there are you know, 4A players, to be quite honest with you. The guys that have a little bit of big league time, no big league stars go to play in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are guys that have been good in AAA, struggled like myself, you know, been able to stick in the big leagues, but you know, not do anything spectacular. Those are the kind of Americans that go over to Japan and fit in, just to give you an idea of the competition that we're dealing with. So, I mean, a guy like him will really stick out when he throws his, his mid-90s fastball with that plus slider. Um, and when I first saw him, and this might be a little strange, but he always kind of reminded me of Juan Cruz, if you can remember the Sure, writing. yeah, yeah. Sure. And just really wiry with a really live arm. Now, he's put on more weight since then, and he's a little bit bigger than him. But that was my first my first comp in my mind when I saw him. I was like, gosh, you just kind of reminded me of him. Mm. But he's, he's added more to that frame, uh, which has helped him to endure being a starter. Uh, you know, that guy, I was just looking, he's never thrown under 100 pitches this year in any start. <laughs> right, you no. know, it's always been 100 to 147. And there's a lot of pride in that. And he can do that because he's pitching every six or seven days. That's going to have to come down a little bit for, you know, if they end up signing a, say, a five- or six-year deal. Mm-hmm. That has to come down for him to survive long-term. And I think that's going to be a big adjustment for him because there's a lot of pride in taking them out for nine innings. Uh, and if, with him and, you know, a lot of those guys over there, they don't want to give up the ball. Mm. They believe it's their job to pitch all nine innings. And so I think convincing him when he gives them a really good seven innings, especially with Texas's bullpen that they're going to have, that it's okay to come out at 90 pitches or 95 pitches, you've done a good job, we're thinking long-term. That's going to be a little strange for him. And I don't know how well that's going to go over, and that might be one of his biggest adjustments to make. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because that was kind of one of the knocks on Daisuke Matsuzaka. And, and I'm interested from your perspective, you being over there in 07 and 08, Obviously, when Dice K was, was at his best, to be frank, with the Red Sox, 
what were people talking about in Japan in regards to Daisuke, and how were people comparing him to you, Darvish? Because I remember when the Red Sox went over there in 2008, and I went over uh, to cover it, and we were looking for, okay, who's going to be the next Daisuke Matsuzaka? And they said, oh, this kid, you, Darvish. How were people over there, from your perspective, comparing the two? Uh, I think that, you know, the, the Japanese guys take a lot of pride, first of all, in uh, even my translators and guys that I got to know, non-players there, for the players that go over to the States and do well. And uh, so they knew Daisuke, you know, especially when we got off to that really good start, they were they were flying high. And so when they see, when they know that Darvish coming behind him is probably better than him, mm-hmm. they get even a little bit more excited. So I think the overall attitude generally was, yeah, you know, Daisuke's really good, which he was very good those first couple of years. Um, where do you see Darvish? He's mm-hmm. better. And, and everybody believed that. And even Trey Hillman, who is a bench coach with the Dodgers, was his manager for three years mm-hmm. uh, over in Japan. And he, I remember him saying he thought that this guy has a chance to be one of the best in the world. Uh, and we, we can use those terms when you're, when you're playing baseball internationally. You know, we get in the States a little bit. It's MLB. We, you know, we kind of throw that term around. But when you get out and you're playing true international baseball, you, start, you can use a term like that and it actually has some validity to it. And so I think that Trey, having been over there, really thought um, – for sure that Darvish projected to be better long-term, especially in the States, um, and thought that he could be one of the best in the world. And I think it's, um, that's saying a lot. I don't mm-hmm. think he's going to come over here and be you know, Cy Young Award winner four years in a row, mm-hmm. but I think that he will be top tier, and I think that's a, that's a fair assessment. When you look at you mentioned some of the changes in regards to the baseball this year that they made, and, and it's interesting you say that because you look at Darvish's numbers, and this, year, this past year, 2011, was statistically his best year, not even close. I mean, the fact that, yes, in, in five years he hasn't had an ERA above two, but this year you look at strikeouts. I think he had two hundred over 270 strikeouts in about 230 innings. The ERA was the best ERA he had. Is that a product of, in your estimation, a product of him maturing, or is it a product of, as you said, it was a down year across the board offensively in the Japanese leagues? Well, talking to people over there and friends of mine that still play there and reading up on some adjustments that have been made, they changed the baseball over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the first year uh, they went to a new baseball where all 12 teams used the same one. And I believe it was a new ball all the way um, for all the teams, one that they hadn't used before. And you just see these numbers. Uh, if you go and look, uh, um, MPB has their website and they have the stats in English. Uh, the numbers are unbelievable. The team that I played for when I was over there was called the Fukuoka SoftBank Hawks, and I just checked in mm-hmm. uh, to see how guys were doing at the end of the year. There was one guy with more than 10 innings that had an ERA over three. One. Wow. wow. And it was like a 307. <laughs> I mean, everybody was two and under. And you were seeing just these really gaudy, crazy numbers. Now, that's not to take anything away from Darvish, but you know, talking about this year specifically, being such a you know big year for him, mm-hmm. that has to be thrown into the equation a little bit. Now that doesn't take away from who he is. He is still extremely good. Maybe it's a half a point and he goes from a you know a one three to a one eight or whatever the numbers were. I mean they're still going to be really good. But the thing that's most impressive to me is guys that can strike out guys in Japan because mm-hmm. that was I, I found a, I found that to be very difficult um, because there are a lot of contact hitters over there. They're mm-hmm. not trying to crush the ball. They're not hitting 400, 500 foot home runs over there. You know, a lot of guys are punching Judy. They keep the ball in play. They pound it into the turf, and they run. Uh, and that's what the majority of the guys do. And I had a really hard time. And that was because I was prominently a two-seam fastball pitcher. Mm-hmm. So if you're just running that sinker in there, guys could hit the top half of the ball and run. And so when I see guys putting up big strikeout numbers in Japan, I'm impressed with that. Now, with that being said also, the, one of the differences is that inside part of the strike zone that I talked about, uh, umpires over there, 
are, are likely to call that pitch much more than they are in the States. I've always felt like that was the hardest pitch to get called. If you throw a fastball in the States, if you throw it in black, it's hard to get called. Right on the black, it's hard to get called. If it's off, it's definitely not getting called. Mm-hmm. Where in Japan, that wasn't the case. Uh, they would call that inside pitch just like they call the one that's usually two or three inches away. You know, here in the States, they would call that one in. Um, a strike here. And when I first got here, Asadahara O was my manager in Japan. Yep. And he had said that to me. And he said, you know, listen, he goes, if you can, if you can pitch in, you're going to be successful here. And that was nice to hear because I like throwing my cutter into righties and, and bearing it in. And he said, if you can do that successfully uh, here, you're going to get a lot more strikeouts. You're going to be good. And I struggled still to do it. Um, you know, like I said, because I was still more of a two-seam fastball pitcher. Mm-hmm. But I think that leads to some of those strikeouts. That's kind of what I'm getting at. Because they call an inside pitch so much over there, it opens up the outside part so much more. You know, if you, as a hitter, if you know an umpire is going to call four inches in, yep. you don't, a pitch, you don't have to be that good away. You can throw average stuff out there, but you can't protect both sides of the plate. And um, I think that led, like I said, I think that led to a lot of the strikeouts. Um, but this guy, again, not taking anything away from Darvish, he has swing and miss type of stuff even here in the American League. Do you think, so that being said, when you see the posting fee, which one point, uh, I'm sorry, $51.7 million by the Texas Rangers, and then probably a contract that's going to be along the lines of what C.J. Wilson uh, got with the, with the Los Angeles Angels, is it worth it in your estimation? Obviously, I think that you have probably a better perspective on this guy than all these other people who are reporting on this. Do you think it was worth it for the Rangers? Well, you figure if it ends up being, let's say, six years and 120, or it's probably be a little bit more than that, but say that's where we're at, total package, you know, everything. So now you're talking, you know, where are we at, 20-something a year? Well, who pitches at $20 million a year? Then you start going toward those comparables in the American League mm-hmm. or even in, in Major League Baseball, for that matter. It's going to be pretty close. Yeah. It should be. Now, you can't predict anything. Nothing is, you know, nothing's 100% in baseball. Uh, you know, things happen. Guys get hurt. All of a sudden, a guy can't make an adjustment, or I, I could never see this happening, but maybe he just takes the money and gets comfortable. I don't see that happening. I think that's the least likely scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, but you never know. But I think those numbers fall into a right about, you know, close to fair, as long as he stays healthy and as long as he continues to do what he's doing. His fat, like I said, his fastball and slider are good enough to pitch in the American League. You can't say that about very many uh, Japanese pitchers. Uh, and, again, because it's swing and miss stuff, too. Uh, I think he should be in pretty good shape as long as he makes all those other adjustments. And, and you know, there's going to be other revenue streams that come in for the Rangers because sure. of this. You know, what kind of deals they get with with television. I mean, all those games are going to be on TV. Every one of his games will be live, and everybody will be up at eight o'clock in the morning yeah. watching it. Uh, that's you know, that's just the way it goes over there. Um, and so there'll there'll be other money coming in. I think they'll help offset that a little bit. And if he stays healthy, I think he'll be fine. My last question in regards to Darvish is, as you touched on a little bit, and but in terms of pitch count. And I think seven times last year he, he threw over 130 pitches. Um, I think ten times maybe the year before. And I understand that you have an extra day. They have an extra day of rest uh, in their rotation. But do you think that this is going to be another case where this is a guy who threw a ton when he was young, he's thrown a ton in the last five years, and it's going to catch up to him in his third year because – that's a perception with Daisuke Matsuzaka that this is a guy that just threw too many pitches and eventually caught up to him. I, I don't think, again, can't say anything's 100%, but I think Darvish has a better chance of beating those odds because, one, he's not throwing those 130 pitches in six innings like Daisuke was. Mm-hmm. He's not laboring through games. His games go quick. He pounds the strike zone. Uh, it's a little bit different. Uh, his body type says that he should be able to hold up. His mechanics say he should be able to hold up. Uh, like I said, I think the big thing is going to be him adjusting to 
once in a while when he's having a good game, they're winning eight to two. They pull him out after seven. You know, where that's a game where he would finish in Japan, uh, and, and him being okay with that and mentally adjusting to it. But physically, I think all the pieces are in place. I think it lines up right. I think that this should be uh, this should be fine. But you, you never know. Mm-hmm. And the obviously the other topic that uh, I wanted to touch base with you on uh, is Bobby Valentine, and uh, you have a unique perspective of him also because you not only played with him for albeit for a brief amount of time in 2001, correct? Correct. Okay. Um, but also you, you, you played in Japan against him. Um, first off in that month that you played with the Mets for him, what were some of the impressions that were left on you? Well, you know, it was a unique time because it was September, September, 2001. Uh, and so I had gotten traded over from the things that fallen apart from me in Detroit, um, and ended up getting traded, uh, to the Mets and got there September 1st. So I was there through 9-11 and through all that stuff that was going on. So mm-hmm. I think I got to see even a little bit more uh, of a personal side of Bobby based on everything that was going on. But I liked playing for Bobby. I know that he's pretty polarizing, I think, in baseball. Uh, I think it's some people love him and it seems like some people hate him. But I was I personally enjoyed it. I think that when you get a guy like that, uh, first of all, who knows baseball extremely well, but also has a big personality, mm-hmm. uh, you get you get in line and you let him lead and everything's fine. Uh, if you have a problem falling in line with a good, strong, you know, leadership personality, then maybe you bang heads. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think it's very similar to for me to Buck Showalter, who I got to play for briefly in Texas. Uh, same thing. It's his show. Let him run it. Fall in line. Everything's going to be okay. If you have a big ego, if you have too much to say, or if you have a strong opinion that contradicts his, then maybe you're going to have a problem. Uh, that's not really my personality. When you have when you have a leader, you have confidence in man. Just just fall in line, do your work, and go do your job, and everything will be fine. I mean, I've had I've had a couple of you know I don't want to say run-ins, but I've had some disagreements with managers over my career, and and maybe didn't handle it the best way. And so it's not that I'm sitting here saying, hey, be perfect. I understand what it's like to for some guys to to get upset and and to be vocal about it. But as you get older and you get more mature, you realize that's not the way to do things. Uh, and so I think with Bobby, for me personally. I was perfectly fine with him. You have confidence in your manager, uh, trust him, and let him lead. And uh, and for me, that, that worked. So, what was the uh, what was the perception of him in Japan from from where you were sitting? Obviously, you had played for him. Maybe some guys were asking you about what this guy was like. Uh, he seemed to be. Uh, you talk about polarizing in the United States. He seemed to be also a polarizing guy, or uh, and and really. Maybe even a popular guy. I mean, maybe maybe I'm off base in that. But um, what was your perspective of him as a Japanese manager from where you were sitting? Oh no, you're not off at all. He was hugely popular in Japan. I mean, they loved him. You got to remember, he wanted you know he led them to, to a championship, uh, the Chiba team, the, the Lotte Marines, which was the team that that he managed over there. They absolutely loved him. And then when the I think the problem came, and this is only strictly from an outsider's perspective, and what I kind of was able to pick up there was a problem in the front office mm-hmm. and they didn't seem to like um some of the things that were going on which maybe could be very similar to kind of Steve Phillips and, and sure. Bobby Valentine at the time it's just maybe there were some disagreements with with front office and, and maybe I don't know if Bobby wanted more control whatever the reasons were um they let him go and the fans were extremely upset and they had talked about you know boycotting the team there was a big petition that was signed uh, by fans to bring him back uh, I think all that cooled over because the year after he left, the Marines ended up winning the whole thing in Japan. Mm-hmm. So I think that mm-hmm. kind of, you know, I think the owners probably got some some validation out of that. But he was hugely popular there. 
uh, they love him. He's still huge there. You know, he's a, he's a good personality, and he was a great fit in Japan. Uh, I think people still miss him. They're going to be excited that they'll be able to watch him manage, assuming that Dice K's healthy and is going to pitch. Is there anything? Is there anything that uh, that he did as a manager in Japan that his teams were known for? Um, that he implemented, that he executed, anything that off the top of your head? Nothing that would be necessarily surprising here. I would say, if anything, when you bring an American style of baseball to Japan, or you kind of you can't just come and change everything. You have to kind of slowly, you know, put your fingerprints on it a little bit. You can't just come and say, hey, we're going to turn this completely over and do it my way. I think that may have been part of the problem that Terry Collins had when he went over there. Mm -hmm. Uh, He went over there, and you can't just go over there and try to make it American. You can try to infuse a little bit of your uh, strategy, and I think that's what Bobby did. So he would do things that would, for, for me, made perfect sense, but maybe were surprising to them. You know, how well he ran a bullpen you know, those kinds of things, um, how he managed the running game. Perfectly normal for what you and I would see, but how he did it over there to them might have been different. And so nothing, um, like I said, that would be really surprising to an American fan, but mm-hmm. just to the Japanese fans. Uh, I think that was, that's one of the biggest things, and how he would maybe rest guys or how he would you know, work his starting rotation or how he might give guys a day off, which is like unheard of over there. Right, right. You know, or take a, take a day off of batting practice or you know, where it's only going to be optional hitting in the cage. I mean, that kind of stuff is just, there is no such thing as a day off in BP for the team that I played on. It did not matter. Um, batting practice was the most important thing. And so uh, I think when he infused those little kind of American ways of playing baseball into Japan, um, you know, different to them but not different to you and I. Sure. Well, CJ, it's, it's been great having you. It's uh, some really, really good insight on a couple different levels. And, and I encourage everybody to follow CJ on Twitter. You're outstanding, at CJ Nikowski. Um, and, uh, and also one of the best, and I told you this before we came on, one of the best analysis of the difference in terms of what, or really what makes Japanese pitchers succeed or fail when they come over to the United States. And that's on his blog at cjbaseball.com. Um, it's, it's really, really good stuff. I do really enjoy, you were one of the first players to really embrace the, the writing, the blogging, and, and to a certain extent, the social media. Is this something that going forward that you want to expound upon, or is, are you, is it just a hobby for you? You know, I, I never wanted to um, – I didn't do it on purpose. I wasn't trying to be any kind of uh, pioneer. You know, <laughs> I fell into the blog thing. Uh, just back in the day, the um, Astros.com, when this is when websites were individually run and operated by teams, uh, had asked me to – to write a blog, and I didn't know what a blog was. They're asking to write a newsletter, is what they called it. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, what I saw and what we're seeing now, the real advantages to it are the the opportunities for personal interaction with fans. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't say fans like my fans, just baseball fans in general. Uh, I'm never comfortable saying like fans of me, but just in general to be able to have personal you know interaction with fans over the internet. And now it's kind of common. It's not on you know uh, we're used to it now, but at the time it was it was all new. And to have that kind of access is what really set the whole thing off. And I saw the um, saw the desire for it, and that's what kind of prompted me to start a web page, just to make that available to people whenever they wanted, to any kind of information that I have that they might be interested in. It was always, hey, I just want to give you an insight to baseball through my eyes, because I remember what it was like to be a fan. Well, now every, you know everybody's kind of doing it, and, and there's certainly better players to follow and, and uh, better blogs to read and everything else. But I, I enjoy it. I mean, I enjoy doing it. Um, it gives me an opportunity to practice writing, which I'm, I'm starting to learn that I have a love for, and it's something that I want to continue to do. Is once I completely hang them up, which is coming up here pretty soon, um, 
I would like to, uh, you know, to dive into writing and to maybe broadcasting. And certainly I think when you do that, uh, social media becomes part of it. Well, CJ, it's great stuff. And again, really, really appreciate you joining us. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you down the line. Sounds good, Rob. Thanks for having me. Keep your car looking its absolute best year-round with 303 Cleaners and Protectants. 303's revolutionary graphene nanospray coating gives you professional protection in a simple, easy-to-use formula. It will keep your car's paint protected for up to 12 months and give an insane level of depth and gloss. You can also use their brand-new 303 graphene detailer to boost protection, slickness, and shine throughout the year. It can even be used for quick cleanups of light dust and fingerprints in between washes. For a one-two punch to keep your car licking its best, look no further than 303's line of graphene products. 303 Graphene Nano Spray Coating to protect and 303 Graphene Detailer to boost protection, slickness, and shine. Both products are available now at Advanced Auto Parts, AutoZone, and select Walmart locations. Visit 303radio.com for more information. The difference between an agent and a Realtor is real. Realtors have the expertise to find exactly what you need and the ethics to do the right thing, even when it's the harder thing. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. That's who we are. A bad team facing a good team is never completely out of it. Nick Costos, co-host of You Better You Bet. 3 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the BetQL Network. There's 162 games in the season. The best teams are going to lose 60-plus times, and the worst teams are going to win 60-plus times. Each night is its own individual entity. That's what makes betting on the baseball regular season so much fun. All the insight you need to bet smarter is at BetQL.com. And listen to You Better You Bet with Nick Costos and Ken Barkley, streaming weekdays from 3 to 7 p.m. Eastern on Odyssey.